Um, well, um, it's great to be here. I haven't been in MIT apart from last week when I was sitting where you're sitting. I haven't been in MIT since the, uh, some of the early media and transition conferences 14, 15 years ago. So it's very nice to be back. Um, and uh, if you were here last week, I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint you. Last week was a book talk. This is a book talk. You see the book, but I'm afraid there are no book stickers. Um, because I thought, oh my God, I didn't know how to do book stickers in a week. So I'm sorry, it shouldn't be that way, but it is. But on the other hand, I do particularly like, which they didn't use last week, blackboards. I haven't had the opportunity to use one of these and hear the screech of the chalk for years. So it's really exciting. So this is just, I, I may not use these, or I may do. That's a teaser. But anyway, we are going to be talking about the transition from the concepts of network and assemblage, whatever they are, to something even more mysterious called the figuration. And I'll leave that as a mystery agent for now. So I'm going to use this great opportunity to try and introduce you to my new book with Andreas Hepp, which came out early this year. Uh, in the States, it was actually came out right at the end of uh, last year in Europe, called The Mediated Construction of Reality. I was told the other week by Bruce Schneier at the Berman, that's not a bestseller title, is it? <laughs> well, no, it isn't. However, my joke back at him was, it recalls a sociological classic from 1966, and we just about did 50 years on from that, which was the deal with the publisher, which was called The Social Construction of Reality. So the book starts from a very simple question on the face of it. That's the first sentence of the book. Suppose the social to be mediated, what? What then? Now, those of you who know, maybe like Nietzsche, will remember that the first sentence of his greatest work, Beyond Good and Evil, is suppose truth to be a woman. What? And he was writing in a profoundly patriarchal society, so we've got to remember that. He was trying to find the most shocking, dislocating thing he could say to his overwhelmingly male audience. Uh, and he de developed a lot of his ideas, of course, with Lou Andreas Salome, a woman, Suppose truth to be a woman, what then? What does that do to our fundamentals for understanding the social world? We put the patriarchal context of his sentence aside and we wanted to start from a similarly dislocating sentence. Let's seriously take the idea that the, the, the social is mediated. We assume it, we refer to it all the time, but what if that really is the case? What does that mean? What does it do to social theory? If the social really is constructed through technologically mediated processes, infrastructures of connect, communication. How do we have to rethink the character of the social world? Because our reality as human beings, who have no choice but to live together, is constructed through social processes. So what are the consequences for that reality, for the construction of that social reality, if the social itself is always already mediated. So we have to talk about not the social construction of reality, as they did in 1966, but the mediated construction of reality. And that's the reason for the rather dull, non-best-selling title. 
So confronting that question means confronting three new questions, thinking about the relation between media and the social, thinking about the relation between digital media in particular, obviously, and the social, and thinking about the relation between data, datification, the making of everything into data for processing and the social. So how do we take account of the fact that media now also, they aren't media as we used to mean 15, even 10 years ago. They're not particular contents circulated on particular occasions for particular purposes, like a TV news bulletin, although they are still at that as well. They are partly the platforms, literally, which are the spaces where the social is enacted. It's a radically different view of what media are. So that's the set of questions we try and address in the book. And what do we mean by social reality here? Well, I know, and we could have this debate later, there are some writers who attempted to abandon the term social entirely, Bruno Latour for one. Um, we don't have that. We think that would be a profound mistake. And the reason is very simple, which is that the social Vague though the term has to be, is a term that points to a very basic feature of human life, which is what William Sewell calls the various mediations that place people into social relations with one another. And this word social signifies the basis of our life in common in relations of interdependence. That's going to be a crucial term, interdependence, which are of course also relations of communication. As the German social theorist says, Axel Honneth, the process of social construction can only be analyzed as a communicative process. But of course, communication processes, and this is also fundamental, are material processes. They are things like objects, linkages, infrastructures, platforms, systems of categorizing data. That's how the construction of meaning takes place, these material processes. And as a result, although Sewell, who's a general social theorist and historian in Chicago, wasn't thinking about media at all, he says a really profound thing in his book, Logics of History, which is that the social is always double in character. We tend to think of it as one or the other, but it's always both. It's both forms of meaning, and it's a built environment that we live in. It's the two together. So the first thing we've got to grasp is the problem of how we think those two things together. How do we think those two sides of the social together? It's clearly not easy. And it's particularly not easy in a world where the stuff out of which media are made and the stuff out of which that environment that media created made are, of course, by definition already themselves mediations of something else. That's what Andrus and I mean by using the term deep mediatization. There's a long history of the word mediatization in Europe. I won't bore you with it. It doesn't really matter. I don't defend the word. It's just a very good word to get at. There's some process going on that's very, very deep, deeply feeding back on itself, therefore nonlinear and so on, that has become deeper. It goes on getting deeper and deeper. 
And the point where it becomes deep mediatization was every element out of which we think the spiritual must be made up has already been mediated before we get to think about it. So that means that we have to have a materialist approach for thinking how the world hangs together for us as something that has meaning, that we live in, that we feel joy and pain in, and so on. So that starts to raise some pretty fundamental problems for the phenomenological approach that Berger and Luckman offered. Let me just introduce you to their two key premises. You may not have read much uh, social phenomenology before. There's no reason why you should. But there are two key premises they start from that they think are obvious. Okay? The first is, this is a quote from their book from 1966, that everyday life presents itself as a reality interpreted by men, sorry, and subjectively meaningful to them as a coherent world. So the emphasis, meaningful to them. Everything in the end makes sense. We see it as a world that fits together. Their second big premise is that the world of everyday life isn't just taken for granted as the reality by the members of that society, which is sort of the first point, but crucially, it's a world that originates in their thoughts and acts, and it's maintained as real by these. So this is a very comforting view. I didn't like the book when I first read it because it seemed to me already, when I read it, I don't know, early 90s, as too comforting a view of the world, that somehow everything we do, all the meanings we make, go into this bigger thing that society, and somehow, magically, it all holds together, and it's good most of the time. It holds together as a world. Well, it's true it does hold together as a world, but is it only our meanings? That's what they thought they could start from as basic in 1966. But are those premises true today? And if they're not, what does that do for our sense of how things do hold together, as they clearly do? Otherwise, you wouldn't be here on time, and I wouldn't be here on time, and I wouldn't have anything to say, and you wouldn't know why I was appearing to open my mouth. Things do hold together, but maybe not on the basis that they thought. So do those premises hold for a world where we, everything is organized through material infrastructures of communication? And if not, how do we develop truly a materialist phenomenology? That's where we have to go back to see if there's anything else in social theory that might help us do that. Now, one place we can go, and I was amazed to find this from the, from the German sociologist Georg Simmel, he actually wrote that back in the 1910s, a hundred years ago today, is that there's no real problem in thinking about the social world, the world of our meanings, our feelings, as material. As he put it, the world of sociability is an artificial world. If now we have the conception that we enter into sociability purely as human beings, as that which we really are, it's because modern life is overburdened with objective content and material demands. Materiality creates the feeling that we are just in the world. The two directly go together. There's no contradiction. So there's no contradiction about the idea of a materialist phenomenology. In other words, he's saying that the more intense, the more real our social life seems, the greater its dependence on technological media of communication. If we interpret his word material to refer to the material we're interested in, which is media. 
So that's an amazing insight from 100 years ago. So it is possible to find something in social theory that helps us here. Is there anything in social theory in the past 30 years, we asked, that offers an overall theory of how today's reality is socially constructed? Or, put another way, helps us revive, refresh this concept of social construction which they used and was quite radical and it created a bit of a sensation in 1966. The idea of reality was socially constructed, was very provocative. Now we take it for granted, but it doesn't seem a bit dull. Ian Hacking, the philosopher, said, well, maybe it's become a bit stale. We have to freshen it up. So can we freshen up the concept of social construction by thinking about its material basis, but a very different one from what Berger and Luckman thought about? And is there any theory that can help us? Well, Andrews and I reviewed it, but I'm afraid we decided there, there isn't anything that can help us. Um, the last really comprehensive theory of society and social theory developed along the lines of Berger and Luckman, trying to get the whole thing in view, was probably Anthony Giddens' book, The Constitution of Society in 1984. After that, our view of social theory is that it's not not much there in the car park in terms of an overall view of the whole thing, which is what Berger Luckman were trying to do and it's what we're trying to do. You might disagree, but that's our view. It's depressing. We've sort of given up on this goal of getting the whole thing in view. It's extremely difficult. Maybe that's why. So that's the reason for going back to Berger and Luckman and their attempt at a comprehensive theory two decades before Giddens, at least as a reference point, to see how we could do it better, take apart the starting points, work with the engine to come up with something very different, if you like. And the first challenge when we do that is the one you probably already realize, which is that media are virtually absent from their book. They're just not there. Here's one point where indirectly media come up. They, they're talking early in the book about how the reality of everyday life is organized in the here of my body, the now of my present. That's classic phenomenology. And they say, by contrast, that my interest in the far zones is less intense, certainly less urgent. So they say, I'm intensely interested in the cluster objects around me. I may also be interested, they say, and this made me laugh, in what goes on at Cape Kennedy, where they're launching rockets every few months over in America or even in outer space. Uh, there hadn't been the landing on the moon when they rode in 1966, but it was coming. They thought, maybe I can be interested in all that. But it's a matter of private leisure time choice rather than an urgent matter of my everyday life. So their view of the way media work in reality, social realities is just gives us access to these rather distant things that we can while away our leisure hours looking at but don't make any difference to what's really around us out of which the world is made. So clearly that's inadequate today. It's laughably inadequate. Um, but our challenge goes a lot further than just taking media into account and in how reality gets socially constructed. Because we have to start not just from digital media, but from the data-driven infrastructures of communications on which society today relies. That's the challenge of doing, thinking about the social construction of reality in an era of deep mediatization, a era of datification, 
when the very elements of social reality are not just mediated, but they are closely linked to processes of data categorization and so on, which I'm going to spend a few minutes on because this is where it really gets tough, uh, a phenomenological approach. So we have to see whether we can work through this. And chapter seven of the book tries to do this. Um, on data. So the classic thesis of social construction of reality assumed, as I've hinted before, that you could build an account of common sense knowledge just by going to what the actors themselves know in everyday life, come to understand at least in everyday life, and building up from there. Building up from what people know in their social context. What's around them? What's going on in this room? What, do, what common knowledge do we have in this room about why I'm here, why you're there, and so on? That's how we will build up a sense of the world from that. So how does data fit into that? Well, the first thing we've got to take into account that, as we know, the data collection about us, about everything, is so vast, so deep, so continuous, that it can't be done by humans. It has to be automated. So there's some entities, which are not us, which are not human beings, that are processing the world and playing it back to us. That's already radically different from anything in the original phenomenological model. So every time I need to book a train or plane ticket or whatever, or keep in touch with my friends, now I tend to go through an interface which is almost certainly counting, well, is for sure, counting the action I'm doing, categorizing it, putting it into a, a heap of other countings, processing that to play back in some form or to transfer the data somewhere totally different. That, we all know, is the general background of daily life. It's unimaginable to Berger and Lukman. Second key point that's profoundly different from anything they could imagine is that the largest proportion of data processing is now done by, uh, not by the corporate public sector. So a corporate private sector. It's not done by social entities that maybe we elect to represent us and look after the data and curate it and care for it and then offer it back to us on terms we fully understand. It's done by the corporate private sector. It's done, and this is no offense to them, to meet goals, which are the goals of the corporations. Goals which are nothing to do with our goals as human actors. Why should they be? There's no reason why our goals should be the same as the goals of Facebook. It would be absurd if they did, if they were the same. So completely different from in classical phenomenology, data knowledge is being collected for goals which cannot be the goals of human individuals. The third thing that is unusual is that in spite of all these fundamental differences, data processes are generating a form of social knowledge, in a sense. It's certainly a way in which social life is being managed, about information about social agents like ourselves is being collected. So the idea that this process is generating something out there which is of no consequence for social reality is absurd. It is generating a sort of social knowledge, which is what Berger and Lugman said had to come from us. And in fact, we can say, using a phrase that they used, that our socially available stock of knowledge, 
includes a lot of data, or a lot of claims about the world that are shaped by data processes. This is a reason why people are profoundly concerned when their Facebook feed, which they have no choice but to assume a lot of the time is sort of their door into the important stuff that's going on because the people they care about are picking it up, has been curated for goals which are goals that, that are not theirs and probably they're not even sure what the goals are. This is profoundly dislocating because the socially available stock of knowledge is not socially driven in the way that it was absolutely normal to assume it was in 1966. So we can immediately see, I don't think I need to go back to those premises that they started from. This is shaking apart their starting points quite profoundly. Social knowledge is not made out of what we understand each other, about each other and of the world we're living in. And it's not made to meet the goals that we have as social actors. It's made to meet different goals. That doesn't mean to say we're not trying to make sense of the world. We're all trying to make sense of the world. There is a common sense anyway about the way things work. There's a common sense about how Facebook probably does things and so on and so forth. But the key point that is profoundly different from the previous phenomenology is there are now forms of social knowledge in play in the world, in the social world, which are not the same type of social knowledge that Berger and Luckman were talking about, which are driven by different imperatives and yet have a deep impact on us as social actors not least by discriminating between us. And I'm going to come back to that. So all this sounds incompatible with their premises. Let me give you another quote for them, which I don't think any of us would believe now, but they stated it as obvious in 1966, that knowledge of how this socially available stock of knowledge is distributed is an important element of the same set of knowledge. So we sort of know where this stuff comes from. That's why it's social. We've recognized this source of knowledge that's why the world feels relatively ordered. Because even if we don't know who has knowledge about something, someone else does. And we trust them to have knowledge. They say, I know at least roughly who I can, what I can hide from whom. I can just lock it in my drawer. No one will find out what I really think about my parents. I just lock it in the door, drawer. They're never going to find out about it. Um, I know which types of individuals have which bits of knowledge. None of these things are obvious anymore. So it's interesting that maybe if we're doing social theory, trying to do a sociology of knowledge, what is knowledge of the social today, maybe we have to recognize in the way they did not that there are other forms of social knowledge out there which are shaping what the social is, which appear themselves to be social knowledge too. We could say a lot more about Facebook and their claim to offer as a community which is profoundly social and which offers us social knowledge. That's a theme for another talk and the new book I'm writing at the moment, but we won't get into that. We all know it anyway, so let's assume that. Facebook does not say we, you know, our stuff is based on pure manufacture and illusion. It's a pack of lies, but you have fun anyway, so just enjoy. It does, that's not a good brand message. The message is, this is your social play back to you. 
reliably, truthfully, without distortion. That's the brand. So you start to see where brands have to have social theories now. So I feel it's okay to do social theory too, because I'm meant to be a social theorist, right? Not Mark Zuckerberg isn't paid for that, he's paid for something else. But he's a social theorist, and we can do social theory too. So materialization of the social world is taking a different form. Social knowledge is being institutionalized in a, in a profound way, which is not to do with what you and I as individuals do, which again is not what Berger and Luttmann thought was common sense. Let's look at data in a little bit more detail and see how it disturbs things. There's no doubt that data is involved in constructing the social world. Just in the simplest possible terms, let's think about the dimensions of that, because they're very important. Data categorize us. That is the point of the collection of data, to sort us into different piles in order to discriminate between us, to make sure that I get the you know, the flight price that I deserve and you get the flight price that you deserve or whatever. This is routine. We all know this. The point of collecting data is to enable commercially viable discriminations between people. Putting it more generally, as Ted Porter wrote, quantification in general, statistics, data now, remake the world. When you put all the data together, you have a view of the world that we assume, we have to assume holds together, the world is differently configured. But that's not the end of it, of course, because we have to live in this world. We have to make our own sense of it. We have to live with what data and information systems require of it. We have to make sense of the outputs. We can't live on the basis that none of it makes sense. That's unbearable. But of course, we also have to deal with the opacity of the system that generates what's offered to us. This is a point made by the legal theorist, one of my favorite current writers, Julie Cohen, at Georgetown Law School, in a great book from 2012 called Configuring the Network Self, where she argues, which is in a way so obvious because we know it, but it's very different to think about what this means, that the conditions of social knowledge and being social are profoundly opaque to us. We can't see into them. We're not allowed to see into certain key aspects of them because they're commercial secrets. The configuration network space is increasingly opaque to its users. It's obvious this is not the starting point of Berger and Luttmann. It was precisely transparent in the end. You could look through to say, well, that's how society holds together. Now there's a door, a corporate door, which does not allow you to go through to see how the platform operates. Actually, classical phenomenology did think about opacity. They admitted that things are confusing. Their resolution was that in the end, well, you find someone who does know how things work, and then it's better, right? And that's not unreasonable in everyday life. That sort of makes sense. And they also admit that we don't know the future, any of us do it. So that is opaque, and we all know it. But when it happens, we say, oh, that's what was going to happen. So that wasn't opaque either, really. So there's not a problem of opacity in classic phenomenology, which is important because otherwise the theory will be contradictory. Whereas now we're dealing in a world where in principle, the basics of how society is held together, its key frameworks for us to act in, 
are opaque. We will not be let into how the platforms are curating exactly the flows of data. We're trying to speculate, but it's in principle opaque. So what does all this mean? Well, there's a great phrase from Ted Porter. Uh, you may know his book, Trust in Numbers, from 96. He's one of the leading uh, historians, actually. He's a historian of numbers and statistics. And he wrote in his book, Trust in Numbers, that quantification is a technology of distance. We could say datafication, too. Quite a striking sentence. Does that help us get a, a feel for what's going on here? There's no doubt that datification works on us at a distance. It's an abstraction. That's part of why we find it frustrating in some ways. And yet it has power to shape the world, as Porter also said. Let's think about this distance a little bit more and how it works. Here's a quote from two LSE colleagues of mine. Uh, Christine's actually moved on to another university now in the management department. But they work critically on data processes, the construction of databases. And they make a simple but profound point that is exactly because of the abstract nature of data, the cleanness of the categories in which it counts the world, if you like, and the simplicity of the logic that encodes the world, that it's reliable, repetitive, doesn't make errors. It's because of that that the social can be represented as data. Otherwise, it will be fuzzy, messy, it will break down. It has to be abstract, it has to be simple. In other words, once the social gets engraved into data, it ceases to be related to the established categories and habits, the fuzzy ways that we have a thinking before what we do is cut out and put into categories so that it can be processed. And that's actually a deep point about how the, so the data-constructed reality that we live has gone, undergone a profound transformation merely by being put into data so that it can be counted. Or as Josef van Dijk from Holland puts it, more straightforwardly, it's easier to encode sociality into algorithms than to decode algorithms back into social action. It's irreversible. You can't get back because a profound asymmetrical change has happened and it, you can't reverse back and get to imagine the fuzziness that lay behind it. Put another way, a phrase I came across a few months ago from the German uh, computer scientist Bernhard Rieder says that computation casts a shadow. It's actually from a great piece about Facebook's page rank algorithm. Uh, sorry, Google's page rank algorithm and how it actually works. How it actually, and the different mathematical assumptions that could have been made and would have led to a very, very different sorting of the world. It's a brilliant piece. But to my astonishment, he's a computer scientist, what he says is there's a social theory at work here. There is an effective theory of the social at work in the way the, the algorithms were designed. Not by design, not by plan, no conspiracy, just necess necessarily. You can't develop the algorithm making certain assumptions about what is a relevant association and what is not. Computation casts a shadow. In the shadow is the whole set of other fuzzy descriptions of the world that could have been influential in the algorithm, but no longer a visible, cannot possibly be part of the surface on which we think 
an act. Let me take you to one other, again, possibly depressing view of all this. I found it depressing when I first thought about it. Now, in a way, it sort of takes for granted, which is the question of tools. Technology is tools. I don't need to explain at MIT that infrastructures are basic tools for living. Without them, we can't live in a complex world. Infrastructures, if you like, the most complex tools at the highest dimension. They hold all the mini tools to get into a bigger order in which we can function, in which we can act. Now, in the digital world, the infrastructures we rely on are increasingly distant. They're extremely powerful. They are things such as the platforms which we rely on, the uh, systems of Wi-Fi connection and so on that we take for granted, all the, all the forms of data transfer we rely on to be able to get our consumer products delivered and so on and so forth. Now, you might say, well, of course we don't need to know how those work. I don't know how a hammer is put together exactly. I certainly don't know how a car is put together. Very few people do. It doesn't spoil my use of them, the functionality of my use of them. No, of course it doesn't. They're black boxed in a sense. But many of today's infrastructural data tools, I think, are black boxed in a very, very different way from the way that all tools are black boxed in the way they're produced. And they're black boxed in the sense that as we use them, they're already in the act of using us. We know this. It was a shock to first find it out, but we all know this. We know that there's nothing we can do but to stop our phone somehow sending out a location signal, which can, under circumstances, be used to track us. Because it needs to do that in order to send the signal in the first case, to receive and send. Now, it's true that information could be locked up and it couldn't pass on to anyone else, but we know that's not the way things are. We know that that data is of use. And unless we switch off GPS and various other things on the front, a lot more data is going to pass, and so on and so forth. So that's just one of countless examples of how the tools, as we use them, as we enjoy using them, as we need to use them, are already using us. We call this in the book um, tool reversibility. This thing can't be a tool to us, a digital tool, unless it's already been in the act of using us, which is what enables us to switch it on. We could get into Heidegger. This is a very different view of the tool from the one Heidegger had. It completely upends it. But we can go there in Q&A if you're interested. I'm just interested more from the point of not philosophy, but social theory. Because this is not what we thought tools were. This is a very counterintuitive way of thinking how, what are the technologies through which we act on the world, we act on the world. But if we're being told that in the very act of us acting on the world, it's already acted on us in a way that we don't fully have control over, that upends our view of how we act in the world with things. Tool reversibility which has many applications. I'm sure not far away from this building, there are many people doing amazing work on the Internet of Things. I know they are. I read Sandy Pendleton's book in the MIT Media Lab on social physics, read it very closely. He's extremely interested in the Internet of Things. But the Internet of Things is, of course, based on tool reversibility, 
that as we open the fridge, because we're desperately hungry, we have to get a piece of bread or cheese or something, it's checking, well, you also took a piece of bread yesterday. And that could mean that tomorrow that loaf could be finished. So maybe you need to get another loaf. Or more disturbingly, let me give you a much darker example. Um, if you haven't read it, I'd suggest it. I got onto this with Joe Tarot's book on data in the shopping retail area called The Isles Have Eyes. Don't get me started. It's one of the most depressing books I've read. It's just mind-blowing. But he quotes from a cheery little report from PricewaterhouseCoopers called The Future of Wearables 2013, quite easy to find, where they speculate about what happens when wearables on our skin testing the state of our body, many of us, you may be wearing them now, um, become normal, and that marketers have access to the data. Because this is what they hope will happen. Well, as they say, Brands could even tap body cues to tailor messages, advertising messages. Sensor revealing that you're thirsty? Here's a coupon for smart water. So the idea would be that the tool that you thought was enabling you to remain healthy by measuring your body, it's a perfectly reasonable thing to do, is also using that data to process it and offer it so that products can be offered at a special rate to you, but on terms you cannot have full control over or know what they are. And even more importantly, that someone other than the machine that you wanted to measure you, that you thought you have phenomenological control over, is also watching the, pro the, the process. And indeed, claiming the right to. To be right there with you on your skin saying, die, you're thirsty. Have, have some of my special bottled water. It's better than the other ones on, who also just sent you a message because I can offer it you cheaper. This is the reality of the retail world today. And it's a bit disturbing for classic phenomenology, it should be obvious. <laughs> so, now one thing we might be able to say if we go back to the great founder of uh, phenomenology of the social world, Alfred Schutz, is that we're living in a very different relation to abstraction. Uh, Schutz had a theory that we have to have an abstraction in the world. Um, he said, of course, we typify the world. We do our own categorizing of the world. Otherwise, we couldn't make sense of it. And that's obviously true. But again, he's thinking we typify the world. And we put that into language. This is corporations typifying us. It's in reverse. So it's a very, very different view of how the world is hanging together. Now, that's a good insight, but what Andrews and I wanted to do in the book, entering the last uh, 15 minutes of the talk, is, is there a big concept out there that could help us get a grip on all this? And we think there is. Um, I don't know if you remember that picture of the car park I had there. Um, but if you look carefully, you see, there is one car in there. <laughs> um, and my sense, I don't know where it is, of course, really, it was produced by Google, where that came from. Um, I think that's Norbert Elias, the great German social theorist, is in that car. And we're going to spend the next 15 minutes seeing what idea he might have to offer, because as you'll see, it is quite an interesting idea. And it is the idea of the figuration. And here, before we get into the detail, I just want to show you one or two uh, drawings that I did. 
Here are two very familiar concepts of social complexity. The network, you know that of course, that's a network linkages between nodes. Some nodes have more linkages than others, therefore they have more power in the whole uh, distribution across the network. But they're just linkages, remember. That's all they are. The assemblage from actor network theory in other places has a network in it, maybe an endless network, but that emphasizes something different, which is how varied are the things linked into that, how heterogeneous they are. It could be almost anything. Making a fuzzy thing we call an assemblage, which miraculously works as one thing, one point in space, in something bigger. It's simplified, so we just know it becomes a black box. They're great concepts, they're important. But we think there's another concept, and it comes to Norbert Elias, which that is a figuration, which on the face of it looks the same, and indeed it is a network. I'll explain a bit more about it in a moment. But the key difference is the arrows. When I'm in a network with you, and it matters, I'm pulling at you, and you're pulling back at me. We'll see which force wins out, but everyone is doing the same. So there are relationships of meaning here which are pulling. That's not in the diagram of the network, which is just a linkage. I'll explain why that matters. So Elias introduced his concept of figuration in the late 70s, um, but I'll say a bit more about it in a minute. To get beyond the crude idea that we just have individual on the one hand and society on the other, he rightly thought this is a too crude a way of thinking about social order. He was obviously right. And he said that the figuration is a model of processes of interweaving. His example was a game of football or a game of cards. You have the individuals, they're interacting with each other, they're interdependent on each other, performing roles. It makes sense to them, and out of that emerges a game, which isn't more than those people, but it is it's based in what they say without being something external to what they're doing. And it's a network, obviously, an ordered network. And he introduced this concept, because, and this was close, but he was in his 70s then, he only lived another 10 years. He wanted to completely change the way that sociology thought about the world. He was tired of people talking about supposed things, such as norms, values, structure, function, society, individual, as if they were things, when in fact they're just open-ended processes, which never end, which are never completed. And that was obviously a brilliant idea to try and do that. But what's even more interesting is how he thinks about this. Processes of social interweaving that have a special kind of order that starts from the connections, the relationships, and works out from there or as he puts it, drawing on chemistry, in fact, a network is a flexible lattice work of tensions. Now, there are a lot of things that are interesting about that, and when I discovered it, I was completely astonished. First thing is, he's drawing on scientific vocabulary, very explicitly in doing sociology. He needs the latest thinking about complexity. He finds it in chemistry, fine. The second thing is that he's writing in 1978. Now, if you are familiar, interested in social theory, you may know Bruno Latour, actor network theory. He's the person who's normally regarded as have totally changed our view of society and breaking it down to the connections, 
getting away from these mystical things such as structure. Um, Elias was working at least six years before, but you might say, so what? That's not a big deal in the history of ideas. Well, the key point is he invented the concept of figuration in the 1930s. It's in the civilizing process written in the 1930s, and I've checked with people who actually, he had this idea in the 1930s as an exile from Nazi Germany. It's truly astonishing. So the founder of the idea of a network society, a different way of thinking social, is actually Norbert Elias. It's not Bruno Latour, and it's not anyone else, it's not Castells. So that's an interesting curiosity, but the really important thing is about how this concept works, which is more exciting than the accidents of history. Because the real force about it is that it both pays attention to material order and to meaning, that doubleness of the social. Let me explain how that works. He says that the behavior of many people intermeshes to form a structure. Let's unpack that metaphor of intermeshing. So for there to be intermeshing between me and you and 10 other people, there has to be a feedback loop, mutual influence, that's obvious. That's common with network, to network theory, complexity theory, everything thinks in terms of feedback loops, nonlinear processes. The feedback loop is based on interlocking practices. So I do this and then you do that. Right? It's not just static, it's dynamic. And it's dynamic because the practices are interlocking because when I put a card on the table, it has that meaning, and in response, your card on the table has a different meaning, and they're linked together. So the tension comes from the meanings. It's not an engineering piece of engineering, which is static and unlinked to our human meaning. It is built out of the meanings. That's why we're in a figuration, because something is at stake between us. We want to play the card game right. We want to play the game right, and if someone does it wrong, we get angry. We're in a figuration, not just in a network. There are lots of examples of that. I mean, we, we're in, all our platforms are, in a sense, figurations, because there are rules of how you do things. We depend in various ways on how things get done or don't get done. They're much more than networks or associations. However, it's not enough just to think about figurations. We have to think, well, is this a potential model of society, as we try and argue in the book? And we think it is. We can think about figurations of figurations. Everything we do in this room is linked to the organization of MIT, to who pays our wages or pays our grants or in other ways funds us to be here, the transport system, the goddess, and so on and so forth. All of these are figurations with full of tensions, which are pulling on other figurations, which are full of tensions. And then that reaches the limits of my capacity as a drawer, but you imagine we're in a many-dimensional space. Each one can be seen as flat, but actually it's a force field. And there's a net vector one way or the other, and that net vector is pulling and being pulled by another figuration, which also has a net vector, and so on, on thousands of levels. And that we propose in the book is we're thinking about what a thing we call a society is. But you can see the key point here, before I start to wrap up, is this is based on interdependencies, and the interdependencies are based in meaning, not just linkages. And because it's based in meaning, things we actually care about, 
it creates tensions. It's something we live as a tense force field. We live it out through our bodies, in our minds, and it's from that that society is built up. Let's think about how this plays in the area of time. As it turns out, Elias was also one of the greatest social theories in thinking about time. He wrote a lot in his book, Civilizing Process, on what he called tempo, which is a very interesting concept. I think we know about tempo because the way we all have to interact on our phones and so on, a message comes in, you're writing something, oh, another WhatsApp message, oh, come on, just trying to finish this sentence, please. And yet we go across the room, as I did this afternoon, and we, okay, see what it is. The immediate message coming in somehow trumps, if you pardon the phrase, it still means something else, luckily. Um, it trumps um, the other time process we're involved in. And we seem to think, well, I need to take away the time from my writing or my speaking to my friend or whatever to devote to this other process, which also takes time because it's more immediate. It's come at me now and it's available to be answered. You see, the assumptions built in, the fact it's available to be answered doesn't mean to say it has to be answered, but we tend to assume it is that way. Uh, according to the Japanese audience researcher Toshi Takahashi, uh, young people, maybe it's a bit out of date now, but young people in Japan, if they get a message from a really close friend, what makes them a close friend is that they will answer that message instantly at any time of day. That is their requirement, that is their obligation. She's a really good researcher, I trust her on this point. That means that you must have your phone by you when you're sleeping which leads to what uh, Jonathan Crary calls the 24-7 society, when that state, that happy state of ch uh, voluntary non-interferability, which we call sleep, <laughs> is no longer possible. So there's a real impact on our bodies of that way of thinking about the way one obligation trumps another in a certain time order. And miraculously, although he was writing about court societies in Europe, um, Elias has an explanation for this, and it's the concept of tempo. Here's a quote. Te very abstract, but there's a lot in it. Tempo works as a function situated at a junction of so many chains of action that demands an exact allocation of time. Everything takes time. It makes people accustomed to subordinating momentary inclinations uh, you know, I'm hungry, I'm going to get a beer anyway. To the overriding necessities of interdependence, no, I must answer that call now. It could be A or B or, or it might be important, even though I don't think so. We still answer the phone. It trains them, therefore, to eliminate all irregularities from their behavior and achieve permanent self-control. That's his image of what a tempo is, and we're living it, we're living it now. And the interesting thing here is that the force of this in society, its power as a form of order, is not based on anyone's intentions. It's certainly not based on a conspiracy or evil power. It is the resultant of trillions of things pulling at each other with a net effect that we each feel at the certain points in space where those things pass to us. And we feel it through the body, as we know. In other words, it's both engineering and it's something very meaningful. 
It's both disruptive and meaningful at the same time. If all the hundreds of email messages we got, they would say, oh, I can't deal with them today. Why did I go on holiday? Look at all this. If they were really just abstract things, just checking a passport, something trivial, something just technical, we wouldn't feel pain. We wouldn't feel guilt when we don't answer them. It's because they're meaningful that we are intention. In other words, we're in the force field. This is not just about connection, it's about the meaning that connection has and the tensions that involves. But it's out of this that a social order is built, what we call a figuration order, which has certain problems and tensions built into it. So this is all large-scale effects, but this is just an example around time and many other figurational orders which are full of tension, which we're living out today. The way we evaluate each other on our platforms has all sorts of tensions built into it, which give us pain sometimes, joy at other times. The way we comment on each other, the way we imitate each other, all of these also have time aspects. They all require a certain time of response to be meaningful. There's no point doing like a year after someone has posted. That is not a meaningful response to what they did. Even if you felt it at the time and thought it was too important to press like, you wanted to treasure that feeling and not signal it. There's a time process there and this creates endless time pressures. So as you wrap up and let's see where we get to in this increase, why does any of this matter? Well, you may not agree with me and you may not be interested in the particular social theory I'm offering, but my basic idea is that if we think that any of the way the world hangs together for us matters at all, and we might want to criticize any of it and say something's not quite right, we have to have a sense, a theory, of what it is that's going on. If we don't have a theory of how it hangs together, we can't even begin to be critical of it. That's the premise of critical theory for decades. One has to have a theory before one can begin a serious engagement with the very complex, serious things that are going on in our lives together. So that means that the materialist phenomenology of the social world is a critical project. It's not just academic fun. I enjoy writing the book. I love theory. But that's not why I feel that theory is essential now. I think it's necessary for critique of some of the issues which I think are profoundly disturbing as well as in order to appreciate some of the joys of living today, the things which are profoundly uplifting and exciting. We need to understand why they're so exciting and deeply meaningful, our forms of connection. Without a theory, it's rather difficult to do that. Uh, another historian of large numbers says in a wonderful phrase that the reason we need to understand, have a theory of how data is produced and shapes the world is that we've got to study in detail the nature of the bonds. He means the social bonds that make the whole of things and people hold together. That's how the whole thing holds together that's most interesting. Now, it just turns out that if there's something at stake in doing critical social theory and there's something even human, even ethical one might say about trying to get this right, as I believe there is, that here too Elias is very helpful. Because although his writing, those last books, are a little dry in their writing style, 
Um, I do recommend going back to them. They literally stunned me. I couldn't believe the intuitions this man had, but they're relatively dry. But he says in one extraordinary passage, this isn't just about dry academic commentary. And I want to end you with this quote. He says that people often seem deliberately to forget the social developments, which is what we're talking about today, to the highest power, extraordinary social developments, have to do with changes in human interdependence and with changes in men, sorry again, themselves. But if no consideration is given to what happens to people in the course of social change, changes in figurations composed of people, then any scientific effort might as well be spared. In other words, if we don't care about the ethical consequences of this, we shouldn't be in this game at all. So thank you for listening. So, uh, happy to answer any questions. Um, the books are unfortunately not for sale today because they are my only copies and I'll need them for the next talk. Uh, so please pass them back and uh, at some point, uh, if they've got to the back, and the leaflets, of course, are very much for you. But any uh, questions that I can? Yes, please. Hello. Hi. Thanks for a really wonderful talk. Uh, very compelling Oh. And, and does that not matter? Yes, absolutely. It matters a lot. Theory? It matters a lot. The reason I can use that and wait for you to ask that question is that the whole book is about the construction of a weeness, right? So they by definition, constructed from the beginning. However, if we're going to talk about the way it all seems to hang together, we have to imagine human beings for whom that's poor, for whom it does all hang together, who do have that sense of weeness in this space. That's built into what is, it is to hang together. So while we must always be suspicious of the use of we in other sort of contexts when you're not trying to do this sort of theory, here I feel it's, one can't talk up any other way. And I had to address you and link you into the way I'm seeing it, because we had to share that maybe you have the similar sense of what's going on for us in societies roughly like this. So that's the first point. Theoretically, I think one can put it in scare quotes, but one can't go on doing that all the time and without getting rather dull. However, the other more serious point you're making is which societies are we talking about? Now, as we make clear in the book, it's very, very important to emphasize that we're talking here about a, direct, a, a direction of travel from a commercial point of view, a proposal for the way the world will be ordered. That's why I put in the wearable things quote. This is a direct proposal from extremely powerful force. This is the way the world will be organized, and this is certainly not a national project aimed at America or Britain. It depends on a global reach. So this is a proposal for the world. Now, of course, the reality is about how far connection is reaching, are radically different from what's assumed in that proposal, and indeed the fantasies about it. That's extremely important. Let me give you an example of that. Um, the Pew Foundation, who do great data, I like what they do a lot of the time, the reports are really good, but for me I always get troubled by their tweets, because it's always, and more people are coming online, and old people too, you know, they're getting interested. I say, well, I know I'm old, I'm, you know, I'm connected, and so on and so forth. So, 
they did a tweet last week which really interested me. They said, well, actually, uh, we're getting some data on who is regularly online and on social media every day and compared the advanced countries. And they found enormous variation. In America, it's 79%. In Sweden, 81%. That was the highest. In Germany, any guesses? 37%. Now, that does not fit the narrative of how everything is being transformed. So the point you made is really deeply important. The reason I didn't constantly bring it out is because it's impossible to offer a sense of what's going on for most of us, and we think we share, without talking in that generality. But that is itself part of the rhetoric that is built into the construction of the social. So that's my answer, but thank you for asking. Yes, please. Um, could you explain a little bit further what methodological or perspectival lessons that your materialist phenomenology or your model as a whole offers to the analysis of digital media. And yeah. the reason I'm asking that is because on one hand, even if you look at the very earliest classical phenomenologist like Noah Ponty, you don't necessarily get this view of this powerful sovereign human subject that consciously builds the oh. social. It's much more about this pre-conscious shaping of the embodied I. Um, and if you look at how that's been used among scholars of digital media, they vary who you know, of course, uh, Mark Hansen, Catherine Hales, there's already this consensus almost that um, digital media is prefiguring human life in ways that we cannot scrutinize. So the question there would be, what would be the one-point lesson or one-point shift in thinking that you were trying to recommend to these kind of works? Well, we don't put so much emphasis on Merleau-Ponty because he is a rather special case in his, his, his take on phenomenology, and that's absolutely fair point. So we are anchoring it in uh, the German tradition, which was uh, Schutz originally, who was actually much more sophisticated on media than Berger and Luttmann, and, and Berger and Luttmann themselves. And it's certainly true, and I deliberately downplayed this in the talk to get clarity of the proposal. They do talk about institutions as external to the, and how knowledge is stored, and they have a lot about that. But when you actually look carefully as about how they think all that matters functionally in the wider pattern, they always come down to this resting point that in the end, we can trace back the meanings that are sedimented in the institutions to meanings that one individual somewhere shared with another. That's the core assumption. And that's why we wanted to go to that course, because we don't think that holds anymore. But the rate doesn't hold is what makes it interesting to still think about them, because we still have a sense things should be that way. If the world, in a sense, is so dislocated that we, if the orders are made out just do not make a human sense of the world, it becomes not fully livable in a way we assumed it was. So I think you're right, of course there's a lot more complexity, but I don't think that part of the force of phenomenology, it attends to that sense that the world is a knowable place. It makes sense, it's available for us. Whatever subtleties we bring to the, the recognition of its complexities, to intuit its order from a human perspective. And I'm saying that doesn't fully work now. So I, I think there is a real difference. So what is it mean methodologically? That's a very good question. I think uh, something I've always been interested in my work about media institutions and whatever from the beginning is that I'm very interested in how beyond all the important things about studying discourse and patterns in discourse about specifics, one can also pick up for, from the way people talk, the way institutions talk, intuitive forms of order 
which are actually very important at the deeper level of framing how all the specific discourse makes sense. It's not always easy to tap into that. But what I found recently in looking at research on big data and the corporate discourses about big data, it's astonishing how regular they are in the way they describe a certain world where data is automatically connected without resistance in the long run for the common good. That's the topic of the new book. But that's a sort of deep framing idea. And I think what I'm saying is part of the methodology of understanding this time a profound change in the basic processes of ordering the world. It's not an order exactly yet, it's still intention, but it is the process of how the world is order, ordering the world are changing. We have to look at the discourse and the role that discourse plays, and we also have to look at the way that the built environment plays, the two together. So that's the methodological thing. We dare not take our eye off that bigger pattern, which is what holds in place all the elements we tend normally to be looking at. Yes. I'm curious, you described sort of new tools being unique in that they act on you as you use them or even before. And I'm, yeah. I'm wondering if that is actually so unique to modern tools and media. Mm. As in, when you swing an axe, your arm muscles tear apart, rebuild, oh, yeah. blah. When you see a, a red dress, you're affected in different ways. So oh, yeah. Even before you are using the thing, it's absolutely affecting you. So I wonder. Sure. What actually, how, how can we nuance that, that sort of statement about what makes media not? Yeah. Hammers the, and everything, we, we interact in a world of objects through other objects. Um, in interacting with the world, obviously it hits back at us. It's another fundamental thing of phenomenology. It has consequences, or if we perceive that, it may disturb us, and maybe in ways we can't give a full account of, and so on. All of that is true. None of that is new. What is different? is the new type of tool. Technology isn't the most important thing to stress. It's a tool through which we act on the world. So it's a tool. Of course, it's also a technology with a very complex infrastructure. We put that aside for a moment. It's a tool for interacting with the world that, of course, enables us to do various things, keep in touch with an extraordinarily complex set of friends and connections and so on, and do it efficiently and allocate time and so on. But we know. We've come to know that another part of the functioning of that device, maybe not under all conditions, maybe linked to the business model that drives the production of the device. We could get into the political economy. That's another discussion. So it's not an essential nature of every tool. But under particular political economy conditions, tools have tended to, and so in that sense, that's a good point. I could have stressed that more. Under particular political economy conditions, tools have tended to be reversible in that they are doing something else with an intention, as it were, to use us through the very same action field in which we are using them. There's an overlayering of use. We, um, I'll give you an example. I um, heard about a really interesting Israeli study recently about what happens when um, People are deprived of their cell phones for a whole week. And unlike most stories, research of this sort, which just says, well, people can't do it, or they give up after a while, uh, it found that people in the end could do it uh, rather well. In the end, by the end of the week, they were getting high on the fact that there were so many people to talk to in the world. It was so exciting, and they could look at and so on. But that's not the reason I mention it. We had a debate about this paper in the conference I was at, and someone said, well, um, you know, these things are hybrid. You know, we're, the, the mobile phone 
is actually like an attachment to the body. So we've got to start from there. That's what provoked the project. I said, uh, which way is the attachment? Are we attached to the world of data collection through our phone? Or do we attach to the world through our phone? We assume it's one way. But which is the body we're talking about here? That's where active network theory is useful, because it says anything can be a body. And we assume we're the body. <laughs> we have a humanistic reading of what we're doing with our phones, but a very different reading is that we are the attachments. And that is, a, that is a, as far as I can see, that is a profound shift in our thought of the way the world was wired up, so that we do things in it onto it. Well, no, <laughs> not entirely. Things are being done through our actions to support something else. That, as far as I can see, is a profound change and is very, very shocking in its implications. And we haven't been talking about it enough. So does, I hope that's got the point, got the point across. Definitely helps. Yeah. I do have follow-up questions. Sure, no, I, let's see if there are any more. If not, we'll, we'll continue this. Yes. Thank you very much for your talk. Anna Jobin, uh, Tufts University, Dozen University. I was wondering, you keep mentioning the people, the social, and then the corporate actors. Yeah. I was wondering if you could address maybe also uh, yes. in, like classical, former, traditional institutions such as government or nations, oh. like you used in your previous work, how that would play into yes. what you've been talking about. Yeah. Well, the first thing I want to stress is that I'm using corporate act, I'm simply using to illustrate what we're talking about. It makes it vivid. And we're, we're spending, as some people have argued recently, we're spending so much of our time now dealing with infrastructures, which we know are corporate infrastructures. We have to bolt on their requirements into our everyday conditions of living. We've got to remember all those passwords and so on and so forth. That does change the feel of everyday lives. So and that that's why I mention it. It's, there's no sense of a corporate conspiracy here. Uh, I, in fact, quite the obvious, if we call it that, I think we're misunderstanding everything. The whole point is that this is a problem we are all in. Uh, you know, it, even the people right at the top of these corporations, though they have made people insulating them, as people at the super elites do, like Donald Trump didn't have a phone, as we know, until recently, unfortunately. So he literally didn't need a phone because he's a billionaire. He didn't need any of the stuff that we take for granted, which is an astonishing revelation about what it is to be super rich. He didn't need any of the things we desperately rely on. But leaving that aside, um, this is a problem that we're all involved in. Where does government fit in? I deliberately didn't mention government. I think uh, the final chapter of the book, the last two chapters, deal with what could this do for governmental order. Um, governments are in chaos all across the world. They're in crisis. They certainly are in Britain. That doesn't mean to say there are enormous processes of ordering, changing the, the sorts of social order that make something called government even possible let alone legitimate. I think media and communications, digital data infrastructures are part of that. And let me tell you one simple reason why. There are many others um, more to do with the media. The simple reason is, as the Snowden revelations brought out, government is now profoundly dependent on the corporate sector for its core information for functioning, which is data processing. 
If you go up to a, there's an interesting book about the history of statistics written in America by Alonso and Starr in 1987, and they identify the point just around the late 80s when corporates were starting to invest in data collection enough to no longer need to depend on government statistics and censuses. Until then, it was just too expensive to gather the data. They just couldn't do it reliably. And anyway, who the hell was going to answer all those questions? They didn't have legitimacy either. We flipped over and they identified the turning point around about the late ages when suddenly private corporations became legitimate data collectors. And then on a scale, due to other reasons, they're now by far the largest data collectors. Which means the government is profoundly dependent on corporations. And that was the main thing of the Snowden revelations. It wasn't the fact that this was going on because we sort of all knew it was going on. It's that um, it was going on in the corporate sector not the government sector, which doesn't mean to say, of course, that there's a positive story here. It doesn't mean to say government isn't going to enjoy the use of this data. Of course it is. And then on authoritarian states, that profoundly changes the way the state is ordered. And in complex corporate slash authoritarian states, such as China, very complex sort of market sort of democracies, the government is building the social media platforms. Government invested enormously in Weibo to make it the most effective social media platform that, that had been known until other ones came in over, so that it would have the best listening device possible. So states are really important behind all this, and we do try and get to that in the last part of the book. But I thought that would be too depressing. So I didn't, I didn't do that. I had enough, had enough ideas that were troubling without getting onto that. What sort of all, the other reasons we don't know. This is a very complex multidimensional change and it's just beginning to unfold and we're living out these very confusing and deranging consequences right now. So I'm not sure anyone really knows exactly where this is going. Yes. Nick, I was going to ask about the historical framing. Yeah. Ah, yes, thank you. But you, you just did a really good job of addressing a pivot of where does the data gathering take place. So that made me think of, is, is this something we see in America? Is this something to do with capitalism? It reminds me of Habermas in the commercial digital sphere. But I know in Europe there's the right to be forgotten in a very American-centered fashion. Yeah. Privacy laws are different in the whole social framing of data in are different over there. So are there differences in that between the US and Europe or other types of governments? Well, just while we're on history for a second, um, there is a whole chapter of the book, chapter three, which gives you a history of mediatization. Um, and datification is the latest new one. We had digitalization and so on. And so if you're interested in the history, of media, that's all in the book. It's just Andrus wrote that, and he's more of a historian than me, so I tend to downplay that. But it's important part of what we try and do. But on uh, these different national traditions, um, there are very important differences. Um, and the new book I'm writing will be talking a bit about that, and in terms of talking about some means of resistance to some of these changes, it's very important to see what philosophical and legal resources different places have. And you're right, there's a profound difference between the tradition in Europe, uh, which um, in Germany in particular, has the principle of the right to the free development of the personality. The free development of the personality is an article in the German constitution written after the horrors of Nazism, which was to protect the space of the individual to grow themselves into whatever it is they're going to be. 
Um, it, it goes back to Kant and Hegel, the German philosophical tradition. Um, that is at the root of the new data laws coming out of Europe. They, the the, 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 the J, general data protection regulations, you can't we get to the end of it, it's hundreds of pages long. But the first sentence is all you need to read. Um, it says, the collection of data right, has major implications for the rights of human beings. I thought that was an interesting way to start. Uh, set of legal regulations, very strong, and it goes back to that tradition. Now, is, that is present in a much more complex way in the states. So, of course, you have the Constitution, you have the freedom of speech, fundamentally so, which implies a freedom to think. But it's very difficult to go from there, and it doesn't work under aspects of the Constitution, to say, well, data can't be collected from you. And the reason is, one reason, is that the Supreme Court a few years ago recognized the freedom of speech of the corporation that makes the code to surveil you. <laughs> so there was a conflict between different types of freedom of speech there. Um, the other thing, various other articles of the Constitution didn't really work. There is a US lawyer called Neil Richards at uh, St. Louis who's written a book called Intellectual Privacy, arguing that because the freedom of speech implies a freedom to think, and that's common ground, freedom of religion, it also requires the freedom to prepare to think. Often I, I didn't just say what I said. I was thinking for about five or six years, getting ready. And I certainly didn't want you to know my chaotic earlier thoughts. It's very important you didn't know that, actually. And you didn't want, A, you don't want to waste your time, and B, it would have undermined, because I, it took us a long while to work out what we were going to say. Similarly, he argues that when Amazon is looking over your shoulder, checking how quickly you turn the page on Cauldry's book and think, oh my God, it's got more and more abstractions. They realize, well, it's not popular with this reader, but they did underline that one passage. Maybe that's a key passage. This data has been collected by Amazon. It has been for five or six years. He argues that is a fundamental breach of uh, the First Amendment. He hasn't had much support yet, but there's some real live debates in America now about whether the Constitution can be used to build something different. There are other writers taking different lines which are broadly parallel to European law. That's one reason why I'm keen to be here and linked to be Berkman, because I think these are very important issues today. And there is this interesting tension between the, the, the very valid and very important different traditions between Europe and North America. Any other questions? Yes, ah, Lisa. that you have to make when you want to generate a, an overview um, social theory. Um, because some, you know, you started off talking, I'm just wondering what, what it means for a theory of data, a theory of infrastructure. You define data early on as an automated process, but that's not necessarily oh, no. the case. Um, you no. talk about infrastructure as a tool. And so I'm just, in order to elaborate an overview social theory, what kind of um, work do you have to do with these other categories in order to advance the theory? And it just seems like sometimes there was a little bit of, um, you know, you, you had to efficiently use these terms in certain ways, in ways that might have reduced them um, in order to get at the macro level perspective. Well, I, th I think the main thing in trying to do, build a, a theory, and it has to be a theory because we can't say this is the way things are, it's a proposal, 
uh, of the way lots and lots of things that we're all aware of individually hang together in some way that's hidden from us, it's not directly in view, is you've got to uh, develop a meta-language. You've got to find some words which are clear, hopefully, uh, and get at the common patternings across things that on the face of it seem very, very different. So if you look at the book, uh, a lot of it, there are bits which are our pure theory, our theory, the bits where we review social philosophy and try and get a starting point, then we've got the history. And then the core chapters are reviewing a mass of secondary literature, because we could have done empirical work, but we couldn't have done the theory if we'd done that, which review all as much secondary literature as you can about what's going on in relation to time, space, the self, and then data to, as well. Uh, the data was the toughest chapter to write because it was a long way from my comfort zone, um, but it seemed to be essential to write that chapter because one couldn't have a theory of social world today without thinking about the, the troubling presence of datafication. So the key was always to find this sort of uh, mid-range language, um, but to try and use it in ways that still hark back to the way we have been using the word, but in a way that still enables to see that something might be shifting. Now, of course, to make the point that something's shifting, you can't be talking about everything that we thought we knew at the same time, otherwise one will not get a clear message. So. I'm presenting you with a sharper view than is actually, everything is much fuzzier than that. But unless we have that sharper view which we identify through that sort of, if you like, it's storytelling. It's a narrow, one has to have a narrative of how things are changing that's sharp enough to be recognizable as something different. Otherwise, one just miss, remains in the, the sense of something's not quite right here. <laughs> or something's great about this, but I don't quite see the difference, what's changing. And if you look at so much commentary today, there's little things changing here, there's a lot about this platform doing this and that, there's what a lot of people call positivism. There's a lot of people getting worried that our field's being taken over by just narrow descriptions. Oh, you can do that on that platform. I've heard talks like this from eminent people. So? <laughs> so what? Why does that matter? So I defend the idea of theory, particularly now where it's so difficult to get a sense of what's going on. And the complexity is literally mind-blowing in terms of the interrelation between all these things. So you have to take risks. And for me, Elias was a writer who took extraordinary risks to try and make sense of, in his first work, how did something like European civilization, a term that got him into great trouble, of course, and it's rightly so, how did, could it have come about as a social process? And he has this fascinating social theory about complexity of interdependence. And that's what's quite liberating, because I think it helps us now. But it, as uh, Bruno Latour said, a network is a, a net that's placed on society. One of my favorite sentences. There are always things under the net, around the net. They're still there. You can't talk about them when you talk about the network. They're not in the network. They're, things are rerouted past them, but they're still there. So you're right, we mustn't forget them. But on the other hand, the network is important. <laughs> the fact is there, and we have to talk about it. So that's the sort of tension that any description has to be, is caught up in. Oh, there was another one here from my colleague from Berkman. And Going back to the initial question of who is the we? Yeah. Just because one of my 
federal communications policy when it comes to African leaders, Francis Nyanjo. Yes. One of his big arguments is in the conversations about data and media spaces and media technology, what we often forget, especially when we talk about sub-Saharan Africa, is that it's, it's, it's almost like a super highway with a lot more people living in the shadows. Yes, absolutely. So we end up missing a huge chunk of this population yes. when we're looking at the, you know, the desertification of society. So the question then becomes, for these populations where drug enlightenment still hold because the primary mode of connection is radio, right? And it's radio often controlled by the government, mm -hmm. it's linked by the government mm -hmm. conversation. How does this then play out, right? Just because, you know, a lot of people talk about social media in African countries and they go, yeah, if you're looking at Lagos, absolutely. If you're looking at Nairobi, absolutely. If you're looking into the yeah. environs of Nairobi and Lagos, it's a dead zone. Yeah. That, doesn't, that doesn't happen. So how does this then play out in that particular? That's a great question. I think, um, going back to Lisa's point, but it, at the higher level, to try and do a theory of this sort, you've got to just push it to acknowledging that it cannot be attached to all the conditions. And of course, there's huge variations, which we do discuss towards the end of the book, but it, would be a, it wouldn't be possible to sense what the proposal is unless you had to put that to one side for the moment. But we don't at the end of the book. We recognize that's absolutely true. You raise a fascinating question about what will happen, do we have a theory of the conflict, the collision between older? Now, that's a, a really good question. I have to, we do not ask that directly in the book. I think that's a very important question. Um, but on the other hand, we also have to look at how relevant this proposal is, as we know very well, and is being directly offered right now to various, there are about 23 countries in the world which have taken on board Facebook free basics, most of them in Africa, as we know, offered a drastic simplification of the infrastructure of connection was offered on certain terms and accepted. It wasn't accepted in India and so on and so forth. This is a very important fault line of conflict today. Um, we don't write about that, I don't think, in this book. The new book that I'm writing, which is uh, coming out, well, I'm writing it now, we'll be trying to look much more about these conflictual aspects and be within a colonial perspective, a post-colonial perspective. Uh, and that's where I'm going in the next book. So you're absolutely right. Yes, Sarah. Um, so I have a question about uh, the critical purchase of figuration. Mm. So um, something that's interesting is that figuration introduces tensions and it's so inherently destabilizing. So it takes for granted an assumed, and I could be wrong here, stability. And by applying tensions, breaks apart that stability and introduces a social theory that is more dynamic. And so my question is that destabilization is arguably complicit in the big data epistemic order, right? We think of truth in the sense of probabilities. We think of big data at the scale of aggregates. So destabilization very much participates in that epistemic order. So the impulse towards paranoid critique, how does it function when it's complicit in that order? And what kind of political imaginary is the concept of figuration trying to participate in? Well, the concept of figuration is just a tool to try and get a 
to be able to grapple at all with a certain higher dimensional sort of complexity that we're living and to see it as pattern in certain ways. Um, and it emphasizes tension, but it doesn't assume stability because the card game might be stable at one level. People are all playing the game or interacting in an ordered way and knowing it's the game. There may be other tensions going on over and so on and so on. So it doesn't necessarily assume stability or instability. It just takes account of that as a, it's a dynamic sense of how the order is built up, which is different from the network approach because of the, well, not there, the arrows, I think is a fundamental difference. Um, what that means for using the concept politically, well, it's not a political concept. Um, I think what it helps us see is that when you look at societies of figuration of figurations, there is enormous weight behind the idea of not challenging that order. Because you're, you're not just challenging one massive configuration with a lot of corporate power, maybe, or government power behind it, or maybe personal power, if it's in personal networks, but you're challenging all the other filigree of other figurations which are linked to it, which will be pulled also if you pull one part. So it's certainly not a recipe for conservatism. It's just, uh, I, I would say, if we're making it more political, a recipe for realism about the complexity of any form of challenge, the difficulty of dislodging things which are deeply embedded in habit. Um, which is another thing that Elias actually talks about, habit, the importance of habit. Um, it's extremely important. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay.